Killing Type, a novel by Wayne Jones, Chapter 11. Evil is indeed banal, and the crude practicality of murder is more horrible than the noisy, shiny spectacle that one has seen countless times on television and at the movies. Guns don't make that booming sound. People don't bleed like that. Death throes involve more slumping than flailing. I suspect that I am not the only viewer whose sympathy has been attenuated rather than aroused by the sight of an actor in paroxysms of fake death, seconds dragging by while he conveniently has the chance to complete his last desire, declare love, reveal the code, quote, Marco did it, unquote, and then the head either being thrust back as an ultimate punctuation, an exclamation mark, or the chin dropping to the chest and the eyes often remaining open so that they may be ever so gently closed by the person, girlfriend, fellow spy, left behind. Blood doesn't keep flowing after the weapon has done its damage and the heart is no longer beating. It clots, stops. I have had the most ridiculous conversations with the raver in which, and I believe I am inferring correctly, he expected that a body would gush blood in peckinpah fashion like a hose let loose on the lawn unless until the police arrived to plug up the holes jesus christ he said no sentiment so strongly felt by him that an expletive doesn't make the perfect prelude jesus christ i mean did you see the body on the news hardly any blood at all the fuck is that all about the implication seemed to be that the bullet holes notwithstanding the man hadn't been shot at all, that the police were covering something up for some reason that my own less cons- conspiratorial mind could not fathom. Maybe the police killed him, I suggested tentatively, a joke really, just seeing whether he was paying attention. Maybe they strangled him, and so no blood. It wouldn't fucking surprise me, anything those cocksuckers do. The man, it must be said, is an idiot. One of the most disturbing things I've come across so far in the course of my research has been a short video on the web of a man who commits suicide while he is waiting in some room of a police station. One of the officers leaves him seated there with a bottle of water, and for a short while it seems like this will be a tedious little view into the dull workings of a police interrogation of a common thug. He sips some water, and he looks a little nervous when he realizes that he's been left alone. He pulls out the handgun that has been concealed in the waist of his pants, and then the prosaic horror. As casually as he has just done with the water bottle, testing its weight, bringing it to his lips for a squirt of life's liquid, he turns off the safety on the handgun, puts the thing to his head just above an ear, and shoots. Blood does not gush, and the dead man now just slumps. The two arresting policemen enter, and one utters an expletive worthy of the raver. They have forgotten forgotten to frisk. Could there be a more inappropriately silly word? To frisk him. I have to admit to a perverse and persistent fascination with this little video, encouraging me to watch and re-watch and re-re-watch the last sad minutes of another man's life. It is not bloodlust, but rather, as grand as this may sound, a scholar's quest for detail, 
for exposure to the worst of the worst in order to be able to write about it with some authority and integrity. It is the casualness of this suicide that affects me deeply, and I can extrapolate from that to casual murder as well. There are some people who can kill literally without a second thought. The deed is done, the victim falls down, and the killer moves on past, on his way home to television or the arms of a lover or who knows what. So this is what I am left with as I attempt to write my book. I don't want to be so cowed or perplexed by the facts that I simply lose the will or the desire to complete the project. I don't want to be intimidated or disgusted. I want to be able to stare the details straight in the face and then write about the effects of bullets on flesh the same way I would write about the history of the keyboard. I have to be able to write with the same ease as that man in the police station shot himself, to level everything out, to treat murder as if it were just a collection of empty words. I've already mentioned several times that there exists a comprehensive and detailed literature on the subject of murder and its investigation. I have poured over the bulk of it with what I imagine is the same fervor and determination that an athlete gives himself to his discipline. There are days when I, quote, play through the pain, unquote, as I have heard it described on the sports call-in shows, and there are other days when I simply let the body and the mind relax. During the latter, I often feel guilty about the time I am wasting while a psycho trolls the streets, but the guilt is mitigated somewhat by a realization that this sort of downtime is essential to the grander scheme. During the play and the pain, though, I am an animal, relentless, focused, determined that whatever small tidbit of knowledge I learn can only serve to help me in the end. Knowledge trumps psychosis. I hold that firmly as my credo. I meet Rachel, the inquisitive librarian, at the library while she is on a break. Somewhat distracted still by the images of blood and murder, I struggle to shake myself down to more pedestrian concerns. She is quite beautiful, and that helps. I can see pinks and light blues and the hint of something darker, navy, in the billowy folds of her dress, which goes down past her knees. The shoes are very simple and elegant, much better than the ones she wore the first time we met. These are white slingbacks, with not a tincture of grime on them. I wonder whether they are in fact brand new. Her hair is a brownie blonde, also not dirty, and there is a freshness that exudes from her face. We sit on comfortable leather chairs, facing each other. She seems nervous, and I set myself the minor goal of putting her at ease. I have a question for you, I say. Oh? She laughs lightly, looks down at the floor and then up at me as the middle finger of her left hand starts scratching lightly at the arm of the chair. Everyone I meet asks me this, so I thought I would turn the tables a little. Who do you think the killer is? She laughs out loud now, very high-pitched, and then looks around and blushes when she realizes where she is. There is a supercilious cough from the old man standing at one of the terminals searching the catalog. Well, I don't... You're the expert. I mean, you're writing the book on this, right? So maybe you... I guess I mean... I guess that's why everyone is always asking you. She stops, scratches more deeply. 
Sometimes someone in my position can be so heavily involved in the details that I don't see the obvious facts around me. Forest and the trees, that kind of thing. I pause, worried for an instant that even though it is a lame cliché metaphor, it may be incomprehensible. I see what you mean, she says disarmingly. I have thought about it, you know. I have to say, too, that you've been somewhat of an inspiration to me. I mean, in the sense that you are obviously devoting so much time to this cause. I felt that I had to do my bit as well. The laugh yet again, but deteriorating to a mere furrowed brow, as though she is worried about something. I think it's someone from away, for sure, she says, because I just can't imagine that someone who lives in Nosting could possibly do something like this. Why not? I don't know, and maybe I'm just being naive, but I sort of think of the town as one big family. Not a big, always happy family with no problems or anything like that, but a family for sure. And I can't see that one of the family members would kill another one. Does that sound dumb? Well, I wouldn't put it that way, dumb, but I do think there is a possibility at least that one townsperson is killing others. Partly, you know, it's because the alternative is even less plausible. Someone from out of town coming here every now and then to kill. I've also heard someone else say that maybe it's someone from out of town, but he's staying here in town just for the purpose of the killings. This one, frankly, I have trouble believing because, and maybe this is naive, I would have expected that the police would have followed up on leads like this, you know, look at hotels and B&Bs and that kind of thing. So what's your theory, she asks. I smile a little more weakly than I intend. Frankly, I really don't know. Like the police, I suppose, I consider myself to be still in investigation mode. There may be certain clues and the like, but clues? Well, nothing solid. Do you mind sharing? They are too tentative right now to give them any credence or authority or whatever. Just some hunches, feelings, that really I would prefer not to share. I understand. She's fidgeting even more now, and I start to wonder whether I have said something to upset her. Sometimes the professional detachment of a researcher towards such emotional topics as murder can be disconcerting to people. Or perhaps she doesn't like me keeping secrets. Is everything okay, I ask when I see her looking at her watch? Yes, oh yes, of course. I find this all rather fascinating. I just have to head back to work in a few minutes. It's hard to tell whether this is just an excuse to get away for whatever reason. She stands up and so I so see she means business. It's been a pleasure, Andrew. Likewise. She reaches out to shake my hand and I do so awkwardly as if I were concluding an interview that I didn't quite ace. Drop by and see me the next time you're in the library, she says, as she heads toward information.